In this best of episode, we dive into the emotional and financial complexities of family disputes and inheritances. Featuring two of my favorite estate planning experts, Jeffrey Condon and Charles Ticker. Now this is a very touchy subject for a lot of families. Our courts today are filled with families fighting over cottages, money, businesses. I can relate. My siblings and I no longer own any of the assets of my parents, and we haven't spent the holidays together since 2010. So from the impact of unequal inheritance distribution to sibling relationships and the toll of costly legal battles, my guests are going to offer some insight and real-life examples. Join me as we explore the importance of estate planning, the role of mediation in resolving disputes, and the potential consequences of unresolved family battles. This is the Executor Help Podcast. Learn how to settle an estate, pick an executor, and avoid family fights. For more information, go to davidedy.com. Now here's your host, David Eady. My guest today is Jeff Condon, nationally recognized estate planning expert. He's the author of the bestseller, Beyond the Grave, The Right Way and the Wrong Way to Leaving Money to Your Children and the Living Trust. Jeff, thanks for taking the time today to have the conversation. Well, it's my pleasure, David. Uh, I am always happy to elucidate people on what uh, a lot of folks consider very either dry topics or topics that are verboten from polite conversation. My job is to be in people's faces and say, this is what you have to know about inheritances and your inheritance plan in order to help preserve your family after you pass and your children end up the children and other heirs end up with the uh, the family money, so to speak. Okay, before we go on, what was that first word you elucidate? What was it? What was that word? Verboten. No, there was elucidate. What does that mean? Oh, like, elucidate means to help people understand. To oh, help okay. To I, I knew that, but I <laughs> I knew <laughs> that, elucidate. but there could have been other people that are listening right now thinking, "What did he just say?" Okay, so we'll this just shows keep... that this shows that I've learned a lot as an English literature major at UCLA. <laughs> and a show off. Okay, so and we'll continue off. here. Okay, so wait till I start with the five syllable words, man. Everybody's going to be really impressed with that. Okay, I look forward to that. So when you were talking about inheritances, why is this subject, you know, seem to change people and family dynamics? And in in your book, you talk about this is basically just uh, human nature. Why do you believe so? You know, people behave the way they behave when there's not a stressful situation. Um, you, know, you know, people walk, they talk, they breathe, and they are themselves. Whoever they are, they are themselves. But it seems when the, when stressful situations come up, you really find out a person's true nature, whether that person is, uh, is, is calm, collected, histrionic. There's another word for you. It means upset, gets upset easily. Um, I, I distill this down to, to saying you, you know, it, at least in this, in the subject of the conversation we're having now is you really don't know someone until you get around to having a money relationship with that person, whether you owe a person money, whether a, a whether a, a person, a person owes you money, you owe a person money whether you've split or shared inheritance with that person. Uh, you, you just, you know, that's when I think true colors come out. It's almost as if there's a special DNA that is deeply recessed within the body that surfaces to change and impact 
the way a person walks, talks, talks, breathes, perceives, because now we're talking money and everybody wants their respective share that they feel that they are entitled to. So when it comes to money and it comes to a money relationship, that's when I think you see true nature come to, you know, come forward and uh, impact on the way a person conducts himself or herself. I would totally agree in my case. Um, mm -hmm. That's how my book was written is based on my seven years, 10 court appearances and $50,000 in lawyer's fees. And that's because one of the siblings felt entitled, even though the estate was supposed to be split three ways, they weren't happy with that. So they went over and above to contest and made life more difficult for the rest of us. And I always kept thinking it's all about entitlement. And it's not only, I mean, you've, you see it, I'm, I went through it and you've probably seen in your, you know, with uh, clients, it, mm -hmm. it, it just, it just shocks me to, to think that family members, people who you spend holidays with, sit down at Christmas time or Thanksgiving at the table. And just because now there's an estate and there's dollars, you have absolutely no, no idea who, who these people are. Uh, like a stranger. I, you know, David, I've been in this business for 35 years and I'm still shocked. I still cling to a belief, maybe naively, even after all that I've seen, that people should just act reasonably, act in a way that, it, you know, that makes people not have to feel like they have to battle to get to 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 administer their parents trust in the state because in your situation that you just talked about three kids everything in three equal shares boom 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 done end of story but that's not the end of the story is it especially if you have children who have, uh you know who are adult children now who have always had a uh, a, a, a tense relationship between them, whether there's, you know, unresolved family baggage or, you know, the, the baggage that comes from, gee, mom, you know, mom and dad, you know, they gave you more during, you know, their lifetime than to us. And so therefore, even though everything goes to all three of us in equal shares, it's still not equal because the scorecard of the lifetime gifts was not equal. Uh, you just have these emotions that come up. And, and you know, David, it just seems to me that, you, you know, sometimes greed can be good. Greed can make people get along to administer their parents' estate so that there's less friction and less friction means everybody gets their share sooner Everybody gets their share without having been watered down by attorney's fees. And, um, but you would think that, and, and that's just out of self-interest. It's right. so like, uh, you know, why, gee, I, I, I've always hated my sister. I feel like battling her on some aspect of the inheritance plan, but I just know that's going to reduce the share I'm going to get. And it's going to take uh, a lot longer. So, you know what, I'm just going to, you know, get along to go along. And that is a common viewpoint. But in I, some cases, you've been, yeah. you know, like you said, you've been in business for over 35 years. Yeah. There's just some people who 
who want to go to court because they want their day in court. They feel that they're so right that if I just get in front of the judge, they will see that the other party are morons. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I actually look at my role and when I have client, when I have potential clients who come to me for that, you know, I don't take, you know, I turn down more cases than I take, David. I have to believe in a case, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 61 on Sunday and, you know, I'm kind of done with, you know, actually, I don't think I've ever started with cases just being taken to extort a settlement or cases to be taken um in a you know that don't that there's no justification behind them you know you know there's no there's no there there there's no substance there you know the, a lot of lawyers you know they'll you know file first and ask questions later oh boy a case a case a case i don't think i've ever been that kind of lawyer and so uh, but there are a lot out there and so there's sometimes lawyers who stoke emotions in the inheritance process in the in the in litigation because maybe they're taking the case on a contingency basis or maybe they're thinking hey if this person is foolish enough to pay me money i'm foolish enough to take this case right um you know it, it's i just never understood that yeah. because i i believe my role is to try to help families stay family after the parents die and the family then divides the money and property Right. I've always looked at that as my role, as a counselor, as a facilitator, not as a combatant. Yeah. So, and I know there are some people out there. My dad used to say, my dad had taught me this business. He goes, Jeff, you know, there are just some people who just want their lawyer to be yelling and screaming at the other side so that your clients, you know, will say, now that's a lawyer. That's a lawyer. That's my guy. You're the guy. And I guess he was that, you know, he would take those kinds of cases because, that's just, you know, my dad was a bit more combative than I am, I suppose. But I've never subscribed to that. I want people to get along, to go along, even if it kills them. Because the definition of a good compromise is where everybody walks away upset. They didn't get what they were supposed to expect, that they expected to get. And they, or they give, gave more than they wanted to give. Good. Everybody's upset. Everybody walk away. Yeah, uh, I know I'm just kind of going on these, uh, you know, maybe irrelevant tangents, but uh, you got. Oh no, they're relevant because I think for people listening that you 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 have to think twice if you if you're gonna if you want to go down. I called it a cliff. If you want to mm -hmm. go over that cliff, if you want to go to court, you want to get in front of the the uh, in front of a judge. Understand mm -hmm. that it's not going to be like an episode of this is uh, of of um, of uh, Law and Order mm -hmm. that it's going to be over in an hour. So you, if you've got to be willing to give up maybe time at work, you're going to be giving up and be scratching checks to lawyers. And it mm -hmm. depends on yeah. the type of lawyer that you have that's probably going to try and talk you out of it. Mm -hmm. But I also, ha you have to understand that you're walking to a cliff. And if you're ready to jump off just for your principles, be, you know, when you land, who knows what's, what you're going to be left with when, when you land. Oh, exactly. What I what I like what I like to do is if I have some clients who are really insistent, I come up with some some egregious retainer to say, okay, is this what you want to do? Fine. You know what? I'll take your money. I need a twenty five thousand dollar retainer. Oh, really? Not less? Uh, no. This is what you want to do. And when that's done, when we've run through that, I'm going to ask for another twenty five thousand dollar retainer. So, you know, that's a way of chasing away these cases sometimes with insistent people. 
Um, doesn't happen that often, but, but it's kind of fun when it does. <laughs> so let me ask you the question. Why do you believe, um, what are the reasons that people end up fighting about money? Is it because there's a, a, a lack of communication that maybe the parents didn't talk to the kids? Um, you know, can you think of a, of a case where that came up? Well, you know, if we're talking about uh, a family upheaval in the inheritance arena, essentially we're talking about what type of inheritance instructions did mom and dad come up with in their living trust? Uh, because the living trust, I know you're out there in Montreal and you know Canada may have some you know different inheritance vehicles than we do right. in America, but essentially the, that if you have real estate, you're going to have your inheritance instructions in a living trust. It's a document that says who gets what, when you die and how they get it. Okay. So, so what, what comes up are children, adult children of parents who are unhappy with those inheritance instructions. Now, why are they unhappy? Well, the one reason is, is that perhaps uh, in the most, in the simplest one is if the inheritance is not distributed equally to these children and how do, and, 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 you know, there's the obvious one where maybe parents left more to a child and less to another. Why? Because maybe they liked the, 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 uh, the, the child who got less, less, right. or what is common is that they felt, well, you know, you know, we got, I got son and daughter and son is a successful physician and the daughter is a struggling school teacher and she doesn't need it as much. So we're going to do what we feel is economic justice between them and leave more to the struggling school teacher daughter and less to the, to the physician son. And he, cause he doesn't need it and he'll be fine with that. Okay. I get that a lot, a lot. The first thing I when I hear that is, I think you should talk to your successful child to see what she, he or she thinks. No, Mr. Conan, it's my plan. I can do what I want. Yes, absolutely. You can do what you want. But in my opinion, there's going to be fallout if between the two kids, if you haven't cl not cleared it with them, but just m told them about this in advance. And maybe if you do, you can see, you know, can gauge the reactions. Oh, we know, Mr. Condon, our son will be fine with it. doesn't need the money. Well, you know, okay. Now, if this were my dad talking, he wouldn't take the plan because he know what would come up as a result of it. He would come up in a there would be a situation where the, the the successful child would say words to the effect of, "You know what? I hate my sister, the one who got more. I hate my brother got more. I you know, I really hate my parents, but they're not here because they're deceased. So I'm going to transfer that hatred onto my sibling. Why? Because I worked long and hard." to bring success to me. And, and if I brought success to me, that would bring honor to my parents. And what did my parents do? They punished my success and rewarded my dingbat sister's failure. Right. You know, so, um, so that comes so, back to what you were saying at the beginning yeah. of why there's these fights, because maybe the successful child mm -hmm. has an issue from when he was a kid with the 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 sister you yeah. know they both went to the same schools and she decided to go one route and he went mm -hmm. the other route and you know why are you why are you punishing me for my success 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and you know, that's, that's just one example of intentionally treating children unequally. Uh, what about inadvertently treating them unequally? You know, if you have mom and dad have a living trust and they have all their assets, you know, house, apartment building, whatever, and they have three kids and the living trust says all three, you know, everybody shares equally, equally. Well, that sounds like equal distribution to me. Right. Sure it does. I've alluded to this before, though. If you have children who have received lifetime gifts from the parents, the parents aren't keeping a scorecard. They're helping out children when, you know, that those children need help, whether it's for, you know, mortgage, start a business, um, you know, you know, the kids need, you know, their grandkids need braces, you know, travel, whatever, maybe spending more on weddings or what have you. You know, they're helping a child when that time when that child needs help. So they die. And when the kids come together and they say, gee, mom and dad did not treat us equally in their inheritance plan because they believe that the earlier lifetime gifts are a component of that inheritance plan, even though that's not what mom and dad thought. But that's what the kids are thinking, because we're talking money. We're talking the the, the real emotions and the, the, you know, the hidden agendas that the kids have had that they've never talked to mom and dad about before because they didn't want to come across as greedy bastards. They didn't want to say, gee, you just gave $250,000 to brother Paul to go to Stanford Medical School while I just went to Santa Monica College and that was $5,000. Gee, maybe there should be some equalization. But the kids aren't saying that because right. they're polite. But now it's coming out after mom and dad die and then the children who receive less may attempt to impose pressure on their on the on the sibling who got more of the earlier lifetime gifts and say gee if mom and dad had thought about it they would have equalized in the inheritance plan come up with some way to equalize they didn't do it uh so therefore now you really should do that and you know what do you think that the uh that that imposed upon sibling is going to do he's never going to talk to his, his his siblings anymore so this once close family, if close, is never going to talk to each other again. And the grandkids aren't going to talk to each other again. The grandkids don't even know why. So that's a way of inadvertently, inadvertently treating children unfairly. And that is a way of destroying families in the inheritance relationship. There's a number of other things of inadvertent unequalization. One way, another way, and this happens a lot, is if let's say there's two kids Mom and dad have two kids and the living trust leaves everything to those two kids. Okay, great. Sounds, sounds equal. But if one of those kids borrowed money from dad and mom and maybe even signed a note saying, I promise to pay you back the 50,000 I borrowed me to, to, you know, so I can, you know, pay for that, uh, you know, you know, uh, um, renovation on the house, down payment on a house, start a business, whatever. Okay. And then mom and dad loan money but they don't get repaid, you know, because may, maybe the, maybe the, the, this debtor son, it's called debtor son, you know, maybe start making a few payments. Maybe he stopped making payments. Mom and dad wondering where's this month's payment coming from. And then they realize, gee, the unawkwardness, the, excuse me, the awkwardness of the, uh, of this, of this debt is, is not, is keeping their son from coming around. It means they, that mom and dad don't get to see their grandchildren as much. So they don't mention it. And to the son, the debtor son, not mentioning it is the same thing as forgetting it. And now mom and dad die. 
And when the trust says everything goes to those two kids equally, everything includes the unpaid debt, whether it's evidenced by a loan, by, by a promissory note or not. So now you have a, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, sibling, you know, it's a daughter who you know, says, gee, um, uh, mom and dad loaned you $50,000. Uh, you know, uh, it went unpaid and I did some math. And $50,000 over 20 years at compounded interest is now something crazy, like $250,000. So now you owe $250,000. Well, obviously, you don't, since you get half of everything, and you get half of that debt, which means you don't have to pay yourself back, of course, brother. But I want my $125,000. Pay up. Gee, mom and dad didn't think about that, did they, when they were dividing everything equally? There are solutions to all these problems, by the way, David. I haven't talked about them, but 95% of the solution to any inheritance problem is recognizing that problem in the first place. You know, as my dad used to say, you know, uh, you know, my dog can come up with, uh, you know, solutions. Solutions are easy. Recognizing the problems is the tough part. This is, you know, we recognize all the problems that arose after having a volume of clients who we did living trust for die. And then we saw their inheritance plans come to life and we saw what happened and saw that plans we came up with about 30 years before, 20 years before, you know, inadvertently create these chasms between kids. So, you know, it's kind of like a school of hard knocks. Right. Learn from our mistakes. You say, gee, uh, now we ask mom and dad, did you make any loans to any kids? Yes, we did. OK, great. Do you want to equalize with that or do you just want to say, hey, that's life in the big city? And we loan money to a kid when that kid needed help. And we just want that loan canceled at our death. Um, and, and no equalization takes place. Whatever they want to do. Whatever yeah. they want to do. But, but David, just getting back under your categories, that's another way of how, of how the inheritance plan can inadvertently create conflicts between kids. So now that they end up in some sort of uh, court proceeding or litigation proceeding or just <laughs> family disharmony over these inheritance instructions that are in this uh, living trust. So far, we've looked at the dynamics and the potential pitfalls of sibling conflicts over an inheritance. My next guest is Charles Ticker. He's going to bring his wealth of experience to the table. He's going to shed some light on the unpreparedness of individuals for courtroom battles and the immense financial costs involved, and asking us to think about the emotional toll it's going to take when anytime we have these disputes. And maybe we should look at mediation as a solution. Charles B. Ticker is a mediator and a state litigator with over 40 years of experience. He restricts his practice to mediation of estate disputes, estate litigation, and estate administration. And he's written actually an excellent book and what I was using during my research for my book entitled, Bobby Gets Bupkis, Navigating the Sibling Estate Fight. What's also interesting about Charles, he's been listed in the 2021 Best Lawyers in Canada for Trusts and Estates. Charles, welcome to the uh, podcast. Um, clearly, with all this experience that you've had, you've probably seen a whole bunch of problems that siblings have brought to each other or the torture that they bring to each other over the years. And uh, welcome. Thanks, David. 
pleasure to be here. So, so, so why do uh, siblings end up fighting and what do they fight about? Well, I think, you know, sibling rivalry is no secret. Everybody knows the concept. And, you know, there's some scientists that argue that it's actually in our DNA that we're not going to get along with our siblings or there, there's the potential for sibling fights. We, they even see it in the microbe world, in the plant world, in the animal kingdom that uh, siblings uh, have a tendency not to get along. And, uh, and I think you'll see it in most families but some families control the underlying tensions better than others. And I have no statistical uh, statistics on this, but my anecdotal belief is that roughly maybe 10% of families where their siblings will get involved in these sibling fights. And although they might fight as children, they continue to fight uh, as adults. And, these, um, and when the parents are gone, there's no parental referees and that's when the gloves come out and they start fighting over the estate. Although we can talk about this as well, we're seeing more and more siblings fighting over their parents' estate while the parents are still alive. They're not waiting for the parent to die. And and also with what you've seen over your 40 years of experience, tell me about an estate that you've seen that they just weren't prepared for the siblings to be fighting. Well, in, in my experience, I don't think anyone's really prepared, <clears throat> excuse me, for a sibling estate fight in court. And let, you know, because sibling court fights are very different from business disputes, you know, business disputes, uh, it's commercial, it has beginning and end, and quite often that relationship will continue between the businesses after they resolve their dispute or there's a judgment. Siblings fights are very different. So I don't think they're prepared, first of all, for the tremendous expense. I mean, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars and even six figures of it goes to trial. And then, of course, there can be appeals after a trial. And also, they're not, they're not prepared for the tremendous emotional toil and drain it takes upon them uh, going through the process, reliving all these uh, bad feelings. Uh, because what happens in these sibling fights is, and I see this all the time, as do my colleagues, they're fighting not just what's, what they're fighting about, the money or the cottage or whatever. Uh, they start reliving all the fights they had as children. Uh, uh, and so, you know, they, they, they think they need a lawyer, but quite often they might need a more a social worker or a psychologist. I think the emotional drain is in some uh, respects, even more of a toll on them, taking a toll on them than the money, but they're just not prepared for, I think, how long it takes. Everyone thinks I'm going to have my day in court. Well, it's yeah. not like TV where, you know, in an hour you go from the beginning of the case to the end. It, this court cases, especially with COVID now, with the backlog, drag on for months, years. And uh, so I think that's, they're not prepared. Can you think of somewhere where you saw that they weren't prepared to, that you could see that there was going to be a problem when the fa- when one side came to you and uh, they said, well, we're going to court? Well, I can think of one case and someone, I, I was actually representing the elderly parent, the father, who had the beginnings or of dementia. It's hard to tell how capable he was. And he had four children that were fighting over who should have control of his finances and his personal care by way of powers of attorney. And to some extent, my client, the father, was somewhat to blame because uh, he would change his powers of attorney willy-nilly. And depending which child he wanted to favor, he would change the power of attorney. So they, were, they had all these competing documents. They were fighting over who had control going to the bank, going to doctors, and they lost sight about what they were supposed to be looking after, and that was dad. And then what nobody was prepared for is dad got very sick, had a, had a stroke, ended up in the ICU, 
And this family couldn't even work out a visiting schedule. Hmm. You know, who could visit when uh, at the hospital? And the hospital said, we're not going to have any of these fights. We actually had to get court orders where a judge set out a visitation schedule uh, 24-7. Who could be in the room? And the judge ended up appointing a government official in Ontario. It's called the uh, public guardian and trustee. But that's a government of, uh, office that looks after the interests of incapable people. That, it, that bureaucrat's office started making end-of-life decisions for their father. And I thought that was so sad. And I don't think the family realized that once they got their, their dispute into the public domain and they were fighting for control, the irony is at the end, they all lost control in terms of personal care decisions. And some total stranger took over end-of-life decisions for their father. And I thought that was very sad. And I think, you know, like they didn't, nobody really saw that coming, but, you know, it happened. But it, it, for it to get to that point, is there is there is there not at no point are they so stuck in their their in their their own individual camps of their own thoughts of the way things should go, especially like in this case for the dad, that no one wants to stop and say, you know what, this is crazy now. Look what we're doing, or is everybody just sort of stuck in their ways and they and they. They, they just they just want to forge ahead because they want to be right. Is it about being right? It's it's about being right. And what we hear all the time is, you know, what's fair? You know, this is not fair. I want. Yeah, but everyone has a different concept of what fairness is. What happens is what I see in these families that like a lot of a lot of these cases, the vast majority do settle before they go all the way to, to a court hearing, even though a court case may be pending. But there's maybe five percent that don't. And the families like the one I described, the, the family problems are so long-standing. And they go, like, in this one, I remember uh, doing cross-examination of one of the siblings. And he said, well, I won't agree to my, my brother having control because he's uh, dishonest and he can't be trusted. And I said, well, why can't he be trusted? Well, when he, when he was 11 years old, he stole a chocolate bar from the corner store. So like I said, they bring up stuff from childhood and it's like in their DNA. And if they have the resources to continue fighting, and, and this family had resources, because what happens is they run out of money, that sometimes ends it, or they run out of steam. But this family had money and they just couldn't get past that emotional uh, that was, like I said, ingrained in their, in their DNA. So what happens, it, you, you would think, yeah, let's, everybody, let's just be reasonable and let's work something out. And it's not the lawyers that are pushing it, in my experience. It's the client. And that's, again, because everybody wants to be right. And, and yeah. uh, it has to go that way. And at what, what point do you siblings, you as being a mediator, and then they say, you know what, let's go to court. What is there? Is there a, a certain point that um, you don't end up going to court and it gets settled? Is it because of money? Or is it because they run out of money? Or now they, they realize that they're now probably eroding the, the estate? What's the, the, the point of no return that uh, now you're, you're pretty much blowing up everything? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, mediation and, you know, that being, you know, a meeting with a, a neutral party who facilitates the discussions of mediator. Uh, in my jurisdiction, where I practice in, in, in Toronto, it's mandatory in these types of disputes. Basically, it depends sometimes how far along they are in the process. 
So, I mean, you don't want to go to mediation too early because they need the information, they need the documents, but what they have to have some pain of the legal cost because then they begin to realize that they are burning through the estate, they are burning through money. Most of the time, it's just that they realize that they just can't take it anymore. And I've seen cases that drag on. What happens? Some of the parties, the kids die in the middle of the proceeding, you know, and then what do you do? You know, they, uh, they're fighting over a parent's estate and one of the kids dies and then their estate takes over. But what our, our courts uh, in my jurisdiction, the judges are trying very hard to get people to settle. Even on the eve of trial, judges themselves will be doing mediations and saying, look, you don't want a total stranger to, to decide this case for you. Because you know, one of you is not going to be very happy, and the loser is going to pay a ton of money and costs. And also, do you want your dirty laundry all over the internet? Uh, you know, when the case is reported, because all these cases are up there. So when I'm mediating a case, I really stress the confidentiality, the privacy, and the fact that you can be a lot more creative in mediation than you can in court in terms of uh, resolving a, a dispute. So there has to be a willingness to make compromise and. I'd say the vast majority of cases will settle, but there'll be a certain percentage where the parties are just so full of venom and they have the resource, they'll, they'll continue the fight. Are, are, is it always about the money? Is, is, is this what it's always about? It's always about the money that you end up this way? Or do you have examples of where people weren't fighting over the money, they were fighting over something that was something ridiculous? It, it's, it's not always driven by the money. A uh, lot of times what's driving it is, like I said, this concept of it's unfair or it's about control. Who And like I said, a lot of the litigation we're seeing now is while the parent is alive. So you have an incapable parent with dementia, Alzheimer's, whatever. And there's a fight over who should be controlling the finances of the parent, who should be making the medical decisions. So a lot of the times it's about control uh, and not necessarily uh, money, although, you know, money is quite often the main reason why people fight over the states, but we're seeing now it's about uh, just lack of trust and control. And with all this turmoil that families will go when it, when they decided that we're, yeah, we're going to get lawyers involved and then we're going to, the, the final step will be, we're going to go through mediation. And then that final, final step is going to be the judge is going to talk to us before you head to court. What happens to the family after that? Uh, the family you were talking about, what happened to the family? They just disintegrated? Well, in, in, in that case, I, I, what happened in that case is that the, the parent died. And then my involvement was sort of, I was off the case because I lost my client. But uh, I know one of the kids, I think the fight continued, one of the kids um, passed away. Uh, I don't think it was ever reported, so I believe it was resolved. But at that point, they were dealing with the estate and they were all equal beneficiaries of the estate. So the fight that I was involved with was a control fight. Who controls the money? Um, who controls the medical decisions, the power attorney? And then I, I, I don't know exactly what happened there, but I suspect, uh, especially when one of the siblings died, that they just ran out of steam and... Uh, and they ate up so much money during that litigation. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, I'd say, collectively was was spent on that mm-hmm. litigation. So, what would you say to? And I would, and I'm sorry, and also yeah, yeah. point out, I doubt very much that there was, you know, a, a reconciliation. I, yeah. I doubt that it does. It very rarely happens. Sometimes we hope it happens in mediation, but quite often it doesn't. So what are the solutions to to help families avoid? heading down this road and, and having a sibling fights. Let's say, for example, the parents are alive and they're fighting. 
or the parent has passed away and the will has been written and it's been set up a certain way. What would you say to people facing this situation? What are the solutions? How can they avoid these problems? Well, first of all is to get your estate plan in order when you're you know, younger and then review it every few years. Don't wait till you're uh, on the edge uh, when you've been diagnosed with dementia or you're in a deathbed in the hospital. That's not the time to make a will because that leads to all kinds of problems, especially uh, where the will treats the children differently. Uh, so obviously any will that treats the children unequally uh, or not in, uh, in equal shares is a potential for a problem. Uh, although even wills that treat everybody the same is a potential for a problem if there's allegations that one kid got more gifts or loans during the parent's lifetime or one kid did more for the parent think they should get more. So the key is, first of all, have your documents in order, your parent's attorney, your will, have them done by a professional, by a lawyer. Don't buy one of these kits where you're going to maybe mess it up uh, and review it on a regular basis. And also, if there's anything that seems different or may cause a problem, like if there's a family business or a cottage, uh, what I recommend is that the parents have a round table with the kids and have that chat around the dining room table and, and maybe even set up a formal family conference business meeting uh, with their lawyer, with the mediator, with their accountant, and try to get the kids to buy into the estate plan and even sign an agreement that, yeah, we're not going to fight, we accept it. Even if they don't sign that agreement, the parent might get at least an idea of what the source of the problem is and try to, to fix it. But where we see problems most of the time is where the estate plan is done very hurriedly at the end of life, uh, before the end of life, or, not, or it's not done properly uh, with the lawyer. And, uh, and it's, uh, so it should be done um, as soon as possible and reviewed on a regular basis. So it sounds like it's important to have conversations while you still have all your faculties um, if you're, if you're the, if, if it's your estate that you're planning, but as an executor, what else should you be looking at? Should you also say to the person who's you're, you're the executor of that estate, you need to let, you know, let so-and-so know that this is what's coming down the pike. So it's not a surprise. Right. And, and people don't always, you know, when they make a will, they don't always check with the person they've appointed the executor as executor. Uh, they don't always tell them at the time, by the way, you're the executor. Sometimes it comes as a surprise. And quite often I'll tell people that are appointed executor, if it looks like it's going to be a messy situation, I say, wait, maybe you don't want the job. You know, it's a, it's a thankless job. And maybe you just want to renounce and say, no, no thanks, I'll pass. Because you don't have to accept the job if you don't want to. But I, I think if an executor and uh, knows that there's going to be a problem, yeah, it's probably a good idea to, to start that dialogue uh, earlier uh, than wait uh, before, because it always turns out to be, you know, what, what were mom's dad's real wishes? What did they really want? And that's why having a, a will done by a lawyer is helpful because the lawyer hopefully is going to make very detailed notes, but nothing speaks louder than hearing it from the parent. But I got to tell you, even hearing from the parent while they're alive does not mean there won't be a fight. I mean, I have a file where the parent on her deathbed, she, you know, so on her deathbed, she, she had told all her kids that Sally was going to get the house because Sally needed a house. And there, I think there was four or five kids. They all heard it. She put it in her will. Unfortunately, it was a homemade will that she did on her deathbed. And of course, when she died, even though people heard it, even though there were witnesses that swore affidavits that they heard, they still challenged 
mother's intentions and had a big fight. And, and eventually it settled at mediation. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, even if you have that dialogue, even if you do your best to write it down in a letter or whatever, I hate to say this, if a family is inclined to fight and has the resources to fight, they may still fight. It's not very encouraging, but that's just the reality. <laughs> I want to thank you for taking the time today to share your knowledge. Hope people that are siblings are in a situation. They now know that if they know that uh, they don't get along with a brother or sister, that they have to be cognizant to have the conversation with the parents, hopefully can alleviate future problems by having conversations with all the children, knowing that this is how what their wishes are going to be going forward. And that'll help. In my case, personally, my parents should have done that and we wouldn't have ended up where we ended up. But I think part of the reason why I wrote my book is you just have to have those conversations. I want to thank Jeffrey Condon and Charles Ticker for shedding some light on the emotional and financial toll of sibling disputes. I urge you to recognize the potential for family fights. Take proactive steps to address them through proper estate planning, open discussions with family members, and seeking professional help. Every family has issues, so don't kid yourself. You have absolutely no idea how your family is going to behave when you're no longer here. You have no idea how they're going to treat your executor. So when we ignore the one thing that life guarantees, we put our families in danger. So the choice is yours. Do you want to leave a legacy or a legacy and a mess? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. To catch up with all the latest from me, go to davideady.com. There you can follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next time.